Well, <clears throat> I think we can. Uh, I think we can start. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome uh, to the Atlantic Council. I know many of you have been here. Uh, uh, many of you have been here before. Uh, I'm Dick Morningstar. I'm the founding director and chairman of the Global Energy Center, uh, and so. We're pleased to host this afternoon's discussion, uh, the next resource shortage, challenges in specialty metals and new energy sources. And we're firmly committed here uh, to looking beyond just the issues that might be grabbing headlines today uh, as new energy technologies emerge and global energy consumption begins to shift in new directions. Uh, the, the issues that we'll be discussing today are going to play an increasingly, uh, an increasingly important role in global markets uh, and in geopolitics. And while discussions of geo, geopolitics typically, uh, typically focus on the hydrocarbon sector, uh, we find ourselves transitioning into a, into a new era uh, where new resources uh, and the geopolitical and commercial uh, dynamics associated with them uh, will play a crucial role in determining the success of global efforts uh, to provide reliable, affordable, and clean energy. So we're lucky to have, uh, I think, and we've been talking for the last 15 or 20 minutes, uh, an incredible group of experts uh, here with us today who possess the uh, technical uh, expertise and the strategic foresight uh, to uh, recognize the importance of these trends. Uh, David Abraham, who's at the end over there, uh, quite literally wrote the book on this topic. Uh, he's the author of The Elements of Power, Gadgets, Guns, and the Struggle for a Sustainable Future in the Rare Metal Age. And he runs the Technology Rare and Electronics Materials Center. Where is that? Because you're in Indonesia most of the time nowadays. The base is at the Institute for the Analysis of Global Security, which is in Maryland. Okay. And, uh, and, and Dr. Luisa Moreno, uh, right here, uh, is a managing partner and analyst with the Toronto-based Tahuti Global uh, company and a foremost expert uh, in the uh, metals industry, where she focuses on technology and energy metal companies. And Dr. Anthony Koo, uh, in the middle, is a senior engineer with GE Global Research. You know, that's where you know all these new GE ads that you see on television where people are going out in outer space and doing weird things. I guess that's where, where, you're, lo where, where you're located anyway. But uh, Anthony's a, a specialist in advanced materials development and systems design. And he recently founded the Sustainable Materials and Technology Scientific Journal to promote technical dialogue uh, in, uh, in this area. So again, we're pleased to have you all here today. Uh, just as a final housekeeping note, we encourage you to join the conversation on Twitter uh, by following uh, at uh, AC Global Energy and using hashtag AC, AC Energy. So what I'll do is I'll kick this off by asking uh, some general questions of the panel, then maybe get a little more specific, and then we really want to have a dialogue. And it's, you know, we're not a big group. It can be very informal, and hopefully we can have a, 
uh, a good dialogue because I know that the people here, you wouldn't be here if you weren't really interested in this sort of rare esoteric subject which is going to become uh, more, more and more important. So with that, I'll ask uh, David if you can kick things off uh, uh, and help set, us, set the stage for us by sort of giving us the 10,000-foot view uh, of the industry and explaining its importance and giving us a general context which uh, we can then follow up on. Thank you, Ambassador. Thank you for having this event. Uh, Annie, Chris, the team uh, here, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk uh, and share a little bit on the, the, the rare metal space and, and why is it so important. Back in 2010, I was researching the trade in natural resources in Japan's Ministry of, uh, of Economy, Trade, and Industry. Uh, and got a call from my friend at The Economist to say, what are rare earths? What's, what's happening? What's going on? And at that time, I had worked in the oil and gas uh, area and other areas of natural resources, but didn't know what rare earths were or what the, the challenge was and quickly found out that China had cut ex exports of these materials uh, to Japan, uh, and then spent a long time trying to understand what were rare earths. Why were those, they so critical to green technology, to uh, just technology in general? And spent, which eventually became three, four years traveling around the world to understand what these materials were. But what I learned was that rare earths were just a subset of rare metals that are critical to our society in ways that we haven't fully appreciated. Uh, when I look down, I, I, I look at my, my iPhone, and this actually is probably one of the few conversations where people say you can take out your phone. Uh, because w when I used to look at it, I, it was just a smartphone that responded to my touch, but I didn't fully appreciate all of the materials that it takes to make the phone. And each one of the functions within a phone is relying on a certain metal and a certain property of that metal. So for the, f the fact that you can touch the apps and make them work or seeming to touch is the fact that there's a, a, an invisible layer of indium that acts as a transparent conductor. The fact that you see the color red is because of a phosphor called rare earth phosphor, uh, the rare earth phosphor europium, green terbium. You can go down the list. The fact that the, the, the phone is so small and it vibrates has to do with um, a magnet uh, made out of neodymium and dysprosium. So these things abound in this phone, and, and the fact that it fits snugly in, in my pocket is because of the, its use of nearly half the elements on the periodic table. Take that broadly, whether it's green technology or, or the screen that's outside, uh, we're using new materials in ways that we haven't fully uh, realized. Um, so what are, what are rare metals in general? Uh, rare metals, minor metals, um, some people call them technology metals, are metals that are usually produced in small amounts. So think of the hundreds or thousands of tons annually uh, compared to the millions of tons for copper, uh, for example. Uh, in general, they're used in small amounts. Sometimes just the dusting uh, is needed, but it's a critical amount that's, that's actually needed. Uh, so. They're also uh, very different from oil and gas and, and coal and copper because they're traded very differently. Uh, they're traded often in backroom deals. And people don't know the exact amount of material that's being consumed, produced, or traded in a given year. But oil and gas, that knowledge is well known 
and there are a lot of people looking at that sector. In fact, these are almost not commodities themselves because they are so specialized. Uh, what also makes them different is they're often not mined for themselves. So when we think of uh, copper or gold or iron ore, you're mining that material. Uh, but these uh, metals are often byproducts. So they're produced after the fact. And in fact, they used to be nuisance that miners didn't want these materials in their products. But now we're finding that they have, um, they have uses and that byproduct can be a challenge, as, as Anthony will speak to um, later. So those are some of the, the differentiators between those and, and, and uh, traditional commodities. There are more, but those are, those are the basic ones. And as and we look into future demands, as technology becomes more diffuse around the world, as uh, a growing middle class starts to have a smartphone. I remember um, my mother volunteers uh, at an immigration center, and one of the children had just come in from the Congo, and she saw my mom with her phone, and she wanted to call her grandmother, who had a smartphone in the Congo. That connection didn't exist 10 years ago, and the fact that the middle class and even the, the poor people are having access to this technology is creating a great demand. The fact that we're churning through iPhones so quickly, um, the fact that green technology is, is becoming more prevalent, focus, it, it just highlights the demand that is, that is going to be there. What we see on the other side are some of the, the challenges, um, environmental challenges that, that we can discuss in greater detail, geopolitical, uh, the, the production um, challenges, the processing of these materials is, uh, uses a lot of acids, it uses a lot of heat, and oftentimes it's an exacting process. You can't just build a new mine and a processing facility for some of these metals. It can in fact take 10 or 15 years to set up. So the real challenge is, is what I'm seeing is that technology is spreading around the world faster than we've ever seen before. For example, the smartphone. Within four years of its launch, 6% of the world's people had one in their hand. That's an amazing spread of technology that we haven't witnessed before. Not the air conditioner, not the television, not the radio. Nothing spread around the world so fast. But at the same time, the technology is spreading fast. Our ability to set up the supply lines are increasingly becoming more and more difficult. So there are a number of challenges, but when I look into the future, that's the largest one that I see. That's a good, very good overall um, context for what we'll con now continue to talk about. And, one of the, and I'd, I'd like to get in and also at some point maybe after the openings into geopolitical questions. And we hear so much about rare earths, for example, in China and Afghanistan and so on. And what does all that mean? And, and differentiating them from you know, some of the other specialty metals. I'm sure we can get into that. Uh, but let me turn now to uh, Louisa, who had, had you have been had been an investment banker, right? Uh, yes. Before yes, I, <coughs> I worked for investment banks uh, as an analyst. Yes. And uh, before getting into specifically this uh, this business, and so maybe you can give us an idea of what some of the commercial and uh, market dynamics that are, are are at play here. Who? Who are, who are the players? I mean, what, 
What are the big companies involved in, uh, uh, in these types of metals? And uh, what, what's the, how are they doing? What's the, state of, what's the state of the markets now? And has there been any, for example, any uh, um, effect on you know, falling commodity prices? We're, I've, I've been involved for a long time more on the geopolitical side and involved with traditional pipelines. And there's, some of you may know, a, a big pipeline being built now across Turkey uh, to bring gas from the Caspian on into Europe. The costs of that pipeline have literally gone down over 20% because the cost of steel and pipe has gone down. Now, obviously, those are not... They're not specialty metals or rare earths, but is there a knock-on effect at all on, uh, on, uh, on some of the metals that you deal with? No, absolutely. There's definitely so much that can be said here, um, and I will try to, to address this. So in terms of um, the players, um, uh, like David alluded to, uh, many of these metals uh, are basically byproducts. Uh, so um, they, some of them, uh, in, in the case of um, um, rare earth metals, which is again uh, a subgroup of rare metals, uh, and the rare metals you, you also uh, could include uh, elements like uh, cobalt uh, that's used uh, in Tesla's uh, um, uh, lithium battery. Um, also, uh, you could include other elements such as niobium, uh, tantalum, which it's, it's included in your cell phones. There's so many other, other metals. Uh, and um, some of them, uh, many of them are, are uh, the largest uh, producer is actually China. China is the largest producer of graphite. Again, you know, that goes into lithium batteries uh, for cars. Um, it also is the largest producer uh, of antimony, is the largest uh, producer uh, of rare earth, is the largest uh, producer. I have a list of vanadium uh, and, and, and indium and magnesium and uh, <laughs> souls and bismuth and so many uh, and so many other of these uh, technology metals. Some people call them electrical metals, uh, electric metals, and, and so forth. Um, you, one could wonder why is China the largest producer? Um, and, and it could be a vision. Maybe they were really uh, smart in understanding that uh, they, they were going to need all these elements or might have been spontaneous. Uh, you know, as they started industrializing, they recognized that they needed these elements and, and they, they literally just went for it. Uh, not taking uh, a lot of thought in some instances, uh, you know, about the environment, and you know, and, and we know now that uh, in the case of rare earth elements alone, uh, there are uh, you know potentially costs in the billions of dollars to remediate some of the sites. Um, so, the these rare metals uh, exist in many countries. Uh, we can say. I can say with, you know, with, with confidence uh, that rare metals exist in almost every country or every region of the world. The question is not so much whether they are rare. Um, the question is, is economic. And it, it, it is, is it competitive for a country or for a company to develop a certain deposit in, in, in a certain country? So in the case of the rare earth, um, 
uh, elements, which again, uh, without wanting to be repetitive, is a subsection of rare metals. Um, we know that China is the largest producer. Uh, they continue producing, I believe, anywhere from 80 to probably 90%. There are certain elements that they, they produce most, almost 100% within the rare earth. Um, and, and, and so, you know, it's, it's important to understand that they also consume uh, most, of, most of it. I believe probably in the 60% or more. Um, but it's more economic uh, for China to produce these rare earth elements than other, uh, other countries, or in this case, other companies in other locations. And the reason why we know that is because in the last uh, 10 years, uh, many companies uh, have been uh, listed in, in Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, and they have raised money through uh, um, investment banks like those that I worked um, at. And um, unfortunately, one by one uh, failed. Um, you know, the, 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 the most known, I guess, story in the rare earth uh, um, sector is, is Molycore. Uh, which was not listed in Toronto, but was listed here in the US, uh, New York Stock Exchange. Uh, and uh, they, they, they just filed for bankruptcy. And, and the reason they filed for bankruptcy is very simple. It was not economic um, um, to produce uh, rare earths in California. Yes, they had different uh, issues uh, with, you know, uh, with their plant, uh, which brings another issue which is uh, it's not easy to uh, produce these elements. Um, if, and, and, and you have to be technology, you have to be competitive. And, and that's where, that was one of the problems of Molycore. Uh, they have to develop this super plant, uh, you know, which had to be economic, uh, with this alkali plant that they were never really able to optimize properly. They were having issues at the front end with leaching and all these different things. All of that's because they wanted to bring the cost of production to $6 per kilo. And, you know, I was tracking the company. I think the lowest they went was about $20 per kilo. So there's so much that can be obviously uh, said about that. Uh, and, but this is just rare earths. But if you look at other companies, I mean, uh, lithium companies have, have, have failed uh, significantly. We have RBE Energy, which was previously Canada Lithium. Um, they have issues also technically with their plant, uh, filed for bankruptcy. You have Galaxy also, another lithium company in Australia that had issues. Um, and, uh, and you could think about almost every element. Companies are struggling uh, to, to bring new processes uh, because they need to be competitive. Uh, and these new processes, the hope is that they will bring prices down. You know? and, and the West needs that in order to be competitive uh, against China and other, and other countries in Asia, which perhaps don't take into consideration so much the environmental impact. Um, but um, I don't want to take the whole time, so I'll leave it as that, but okay. we can definitely no, that's very, continue. That's very helpful, and we can continue. And just building on that, um, let, me, let me ask Anthony a couple of questions. One, 
why, given the potential future for some of these metals, but given the what Luisa was pointing out about the tr huge costs of production and bringing costs down, and given that you're at a big company like GE, is this industry going to be one that's going to require the major companies like the GEs of the world to, uh, to develop these products uh, to uh, be able to meet the full potential of the products uh, as, they become, as the metals become more used over time. And then uh, on the risk issue, um, and then maybe after you, David could also uh, jump in, uh, jump in on this. Uh, take China, for example. And we were talking earlier. We heard a lot some years ago about the China risk and monopolizing on on rare earths and what happens if they shut off some of these metals. Uh, then I guess there was a WTO case. Uh, what is the risk today? Uh, uh, from the standpoint of, uh, of sources, uh, so maybe if you could, you know, comment on some of the, some of those things. Yeah, so long list of questions, but I'll, I'll do what I can. Um, I come from humbler origins. I work in technology and engineering, and so what I'd like to do is, by way of a story, explaining how I ended up in this space, try to touch on some of those questions. So if you turn the clock back to about 2008. Um, there was an element called rhenium. Some of you may know about it. Rhenium is an element that is one of the rarest elements um, in the world. But you need a little bit of it in aircraft engine blades for them to really be able to function at high temperatures without creeping is, is the technical terms. They kind of stretch when they're, they're spinning. And GE went through a period of time where the rhenium markets took off. And they went virtually vertical. And that was a, a tremendous challenge for our business. Um, a lot of different um, things were done in terms of sourcing, in terms of technology, engineering. All hands were on deck. And after, that, after we got through that, that um, challenge, that crisis, um, our senior leadership um, asked the question, well, what's the next rhenium? There are other elements. There are other things that are potentially at risk. So what is the next thing? And GE has a very, very competent sourcing organization, um, very strong supply chains, very, very good professionals that can kind of go through and work through establishing markets and, and going through that. But that assignment actually was not given to them. It was given to some of the folks at the research center, which is where I sit. And the reason for that is that they wanted to bring in a technology perspective to understand uh, not just what's being used, but why it's being used. What are your things that you can do to change out um, elements if one of them becomes difficult to get? And so that was sort of the reason um, why I was pulled into this, this um, particular exercise. So my predecessor, who kind of kicked off um, things, was a guy by the name of Steve Duclos. He, he kind of went through all our businesses talking to our sourcing teams to understand you know, what do we use, how much do we use, where does it come from in, in all of our different products. And so he, he kind of set up what we call the criticality analysis, basically saying if you go along the periodic table, um, out of the first 80 plus elements on the table, GE uses something on the order of 75 of them. So we have very, very broad exposure. And if you go element by element, talking business by business, to try to build a picture of what we use, that, that's a good starting point, because it tells you, you know, where are we exposed and what do we use. The other piece that Steve brought to the story was to say, well, um, how does it affect us if we suddenly weren't able to get it? And so Steve kind of scored different elements on both of those axes. So some elements we use a lot of, um, and if, if we were to um, not be able to get them, well, maybe we could switch out and it wouldn't be too big a deal. There are some elements where we use a very little bit of it, but if we couldn't get it, it would be tremendous um, revenue impact. And so we kind of went through that list and identified a short list of elements. And so turn the clock forward from about 2008 to 2010, rare earths hit. 
And so technology then was involved in, in our company's response to it. So there was definitely a sourcing element to it. There was engineering, there was manufacturing operations, but technology was brought in to also help um, figure out how we would respond as a company to that. Um, so that's maybe a, a starting point as to, as to how our company at least looks at the issue of risk. If you actually go down to the issue of supply risk, which gets a little bit of what David started with and, and Luis had touched on, um, prices is a good indicator, but it's not the only indicator. When prices are high, you have a lot of people's attention. When prices are low, that attention and urgency can sometimes go down. Um, when we think about risk internally, we actually have other things that we worry about. And so some of the buzzwords, maybe your keywords that you might hear are um, companion metals. And so David touched upon that, that a lot of the elements on the periodic table aren't directly mined. They're byproducts of, of other elements. And so in those cases, if you have low prices of the parent element, you can run into challenges where you may not be actually able to get certain other elements that are byproducts because the, the, the parent element is not um, economically favorable. So you can run into those types of dynamics where even if you're willing to pay very, very high prices, it may actually be a physical supply issue. So those are um, a factor of risk that we worry about when we think about. Um, a second thing we, we look at is, is what we call concentration risk. And basically that's um, very simple. It's, it's, if there's only one place you can go to get something, that's a pretty risky situation versus if you have multiple sources. And, and Louisa talked about this. And China is, is typically held up as an example of a country where there's a lot of supply risk and concentration risk around certain elements. A lot of elements come out of China. And as a result, because that's the single place that things come out of, you need to watch that versus if you had five or six countries that were producing an element. So, so that's an example of that. Um, going further, it's not just the raw mining supply. You can dig um, ore out of the ground and refine it to certain levels of purity. And you can run into concentration risk downstream as well. So maybe there's enough of an element, um, and there are multiple sources around the world, but there's a particular purity that you might need for your type of application. And maybe there's only one or two people in the world that can make that. So you have to go through the entire supply chain, or at least we try to, and, and understand that. Um, the third, third piece I'd like to get at is, is this idea of, of competition risk. And so if you take a particular element, um, Louisa mentioned, mentioned tantalum. Um, tantalum is a metal that goes into multiple um, products, multiple industries. And so tantalum can show up in capacitors like batteries and iPhones. We also use tantalum as a company in super alloys, which are used in um, metals for, for jet engines and, and power turbines and other things. The reason I mentioned that is that those two markets um, are very, very different, and they're actually competing for the same source material. So you can imagine um, in the case of, say, a super alloy, the development cycles for that are very long, decade, maybe two decades, to actually invent a new alloy figure out how to make it, if it's going to fly, get it qualified by the FAA. And, and you're, you're pretty locked in. You have some degrees of freedom, but you're pretty locked in once you have something set. Now, if you have a competing industry, let's say the electronics industry that uses tantalum or, or suddenly decides in the next iPhone to, to increase their use or decrease their use, that can really shake the markets as well. And so we think about competition. And that's, that's the last part of your question is when you have technology coming on, it, it's a wild card. Sometimes technology causes a step jump in demand. Sometimes it depresses it. And so that's another reason why uh, people like me have been brought in, at least at GE, to help think through this in partnership with our, our supply chain team. Do you look at political risk at all? We do, um, but it's, it's challenging to, to kind of go through and, and navigate that. So I mean, we score um, political risk as best we can. Um, but right now, for me, I tend to focus on the technology side of things. David, do you want to jump in on any of this? Sure, the, the political risk is real. Uh, the fact that one country dominates production um, is, is a concern. Uh, and whether that's one country for Brazil and Niobium or whether it's uh, in China uh, and their interest in becoming not only the mining 
not, in the, not only the mining aspect, the processing aspect as well. So it's one thing that you can find the minerals in the ground. The question is, can you process it? And if so, where do you process it? And so what you see in, in, in China has been this, this focus back in the 80s on mining. Uh, how do we mine these, these, these resources or whatever resources we have? And originally it was for, to get capital, to, to get some foreign currency. And then over time they went beyond mining and their focus became more how do we produce the materials from the mine product. And now what you see is um, the focus more on developing the components. Um, the idea is that they don't, the, the country doesn't want to make Christmas lights for too much longer. Uh, they really want to focus on not just putting the iPhone together, but making it domestically. And if you look at uh, China's five-year plan, uh, you'll see that they have this Made in China 2025 program, which is still kind of being um, formulated, but it's a general strategy where they're focusing on 10 sectors, mostly high-tech sectors, uh, but that all rely on, on new materials, so green energy cars, um, trains, planes. Um, all use these rare materials in, in, in abundance. And they want to switch the dynamic where they're relying on components from Japan, Germany, Korea. They want to make those components domestically, which makes sense if you're a country and you want to develop. And they're using these rare metals as a way to encourage companies either to come over or to develop these technologies uh, locally. And they rely on, and this number's somewhat hazy, uh, but they bring in roughly 75% of the components that they use now. Uh, they want to switch that on its head by 2025 and, and bring in, uh, their goal is to bring in 20, uh, rely on imports for 25% of their components. That seem, may seem like little numbers, but that has massive implications to the supply chains of the world if they're successful in meeting that goal. That means companies that are producing in Korea or Japan are going to be based in China if it's successful. Or they're going to produce things domestically. Um, so the rare metals fits into that is that's the key input. And when I go to China, I was in China in 2013 at a rare earth conference in Ganzhou, uh, the, middle of, the middle of nowhere China. Um, and there, there were 500 scientists pounding away just on rare earths. They were, there was a session on how to use rare earths to uh, replace rubber. China relies on rubber for 100% um, reliant on, on imports for rubber. You go to a comparative conference in the US, there's not, they're not 500 rare earth scientists. You're lucky to get 100, 125 on all of the critical materials. And at those conferences, we're talking about how do we not use material? So in the long term, if you've got countries and companies are figuring out how to make products and saying, you know what, I'm not going to use this material, this material, and this material. And you've got countries and companies out there saying, I want to make the best product I can with using any material. Over the long term, that country is setting itself up in a better position to make better products over the long run. So, I mean, it sounds to me, even when talking, when talking about a country like China, that the risk isn't so much at this point political risk that they, you know, although they could, I suppose, quote, weaponize rare earths so as to use it for political purposes and, you know, and playing political games with other countries, which maybe that, maybe that would continue. But it sort of comes back to the competition point that, uh, uh, that Anthony was making, that if they develop if they have many more scientists doing research 
and are developing their own domestic businesses to use these resources that they have, they're going to have less to export, or, or it'll be at very high prices. Less, less interest to export, and uh, the hope is to use these things domestically. I think what uh, the un, one of the underappreciated aspects to the, the, the manufacturing boom that China had was, oh, there's also a lot of talk about the environment. As Anthony had mentioned, lower environmental standards allows companies to operate um, more, more inexpensively. There's talking about loans that companies get if they're based in, in China. But what's underappreciated is the fact that the materials are there and the materials are cheaper. And if you're uncertain about supply and you rely on an obscure metal and you have a choice of where your production is and if you're uncertain about the supply chain, why not move to China where you know, where the oper you know, you know you're going to have access to, to inexpensive materials for the long term? What's, uh, Luis, what's your reaction uh, to this? Uh, you know, from all that you, what you've all been saying, these metals are going to be becoming more and more important. Uh, they're the risks that uh, have been, you know, that you all have been talking about. Uh, if you had to develop a strategy to, so that 15 years from now, uh, we had the access to all the metals that we needed uh, and to you know to mitigate and to mitigate the kinds of risks that we've been talking about what would you do yes uh, that's, a, that's a very important question um, I think there has to be uh, a change almost uh, in, in culture uh, in terms of how um, the West in particular, I think, uh, looks at um, mineral development. So we are used to uh, developing iron ore, copper, and, uh, and you can build a whole company just around one of these, these major metals. When you start talking about the strategic metals, uh, we can call them technology metals, we almost have to look at them as technologies. Uh, so if you look at the balance sheet of Apple, Honeywell, uh, many other major companies, uh, the R&D section uh, is sometimes in the billions. Um, you know, these companies are not afraid to spend hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes even billions, developing a technology uh, that's going into uh, their products. Um, that's not the case, that's not the way they see uh, mines. Approaching a G or Siemens or any other, any other of these companies that use strategic metals and tell them, you know, maybe you should get together and, and, and try and help one of these mining companies uh, uh, to develop a process that is economic and competitive and green at the same time because uh, it's not easy to compete with China and other uh, major producers of these elements using the conventional um, uh, processes, chemical processes that they use because the impact to the environment is possibly unacceptable in this part of the world. So we almost have to use, the way I see it, uh, and this is completely out of the box, um, it's, it's to develop almost a different model to, to support some of these more uh, uh, junior and some emerging companies. And so these companies, many of them have deposits. I mentioned the lithium uh, uh, companies, but they're also developing some rather new 
uh, processes to refine lithium to high levels so that they can go into batteries. And, and they're trying to raise hundreds of millions of dollars for, for the last few, few years, and they, they're not able to do that. If they were developing a lithium technology uh, for, for batteries, they probably would be able to, uh, to have their, their technologies adopted by, by one of the major uh, producers. So people look at uh, these metals as, as mining uh, projects, and they are in the sense that you have, so in some cases, to blast the rock and so forth, um, but, um, but they are electronic, uh, the technological uh, or technology metals, I would say. So that is, that is a, a, an, important, an important consideration because China, in many instances, are, are able to produce at lower prices, but then you have other elements, like I mentioned cobalt. Most of the cobalt comes from Congo. Um, and competing the costs of extraction in Congo, it's almost uh, in, impossible. Uh, and so uh, Tesla talks about uh, trying to uh, produce or uh, build a gigafactory and source all the elements from North America. You know, it, it would be interesting to see how yeah. they're going to achieve uh, those low costs and be competitive. So uh, that's really helpful. Let me get, then let me go back to Anthony and, you know, working for GE. The, does it take, is it, is it going to take the big companies like GE to work with smaller companies to develop the processes, whether it's in the Congo or, or other places? And then what's the role of government in this? Should there be government intervention, government subsidies to, uh, to develop the kinds of metals that are going to be necessary for the future, or can the private sector do it on their own? So taking the first part, I think um, there's room for for companies, I think, that use things to work with their supply chains to do that. And GE does um, work with its suppliers to figure out how to do things better. Um, with respect to the, the government piece, I think there are some green shoots. There is investment by the US government in some areas. So for example, um, the Defense Department, the Defense Logistics Agency, does track use of, of critical materials um, in the military um, supply chain. So they do a, a good job of tracking not just what's used, but where are the different platforms, how does that map out. So, so there is some awareness there, and so I think that's that's a good sign. Um, in the Department of Energy, um, there has been an initiative to kind of track what does clean energy 10 years down the road need in terms of, clean en of, in terms of these types of materials. And so um, they issued a report, I believe, in 2010 and 11, and they're actually revamping that this year, saying if we assume wind, solar, some of these technologies come to fruition at the levels that we'd like to see them at, what's the demand look like and which ones do we really need to pay attention to? So they, they are trying to track that, which I think is the first piece. And in terms of action, um, the DOD is also, or sorry, DOE has sponsored um, a critical materials institute, which is actually an R&D early stage um, initiative to kind of get at some of these questions about how do you look at better extraction technologies? How can you take maybe some materials? Like in, in rare earths, for example, there's, there's a list of 17 elements at the bottom of the periodic table. You actually get them all together, and some of those are more valuable than others. And so one of the projects I believe that the, the critical materials institute is saying is, can I come up with new applications that creates demand for elements that are in oversupply to kind of make the overall economics look a little bit better. Um, they're looking at alternate magnet materials. And so, so there's, there is some, some R&D investment by the government. Um, and so that's the piece that I've been most connected to in understanding how that, that looks. But I, I think there is, um, it's certainly an, an important issue. Um, it's not just the private sector by itself that has to, to wrestle with it. I think you've heard from, from Dave and from 
at least the, the importance from a U.S. competitive point of view. Um, but from, from G's, you know, personal point of view, right, or, or company point of view, it's important to, to be able to be competitive and to work with, with, you know, the constraints that we have. I think the, the fact that we're talking about critical material sounds like something new, like a, it, it, as it's a, a new topic. But throughout, throughout history, especially since the 1920s in the U.S., when we fought World War I, it was uh, illegal to um, export uh, tungsten. There was a fight over molybdenum. And these were steel strengtheners um, that were used in military applications. In the 1930s, there were lists of materials that should or shouldn't be exported. In the, 1940, in the 1950s, we were spending hundreds of millions on the development of titanium, just one specialty metal. In the 1960s, there was uh, offices in the State Department and the Department of Defense that focused on non-ferrous materials. In the 1980s, Reagan was dealing with how do we handle a strategic material stockpile. <coughs> so the fact that we're, we're, we're talking about it now is nothing new. What the aberration was is that we weren't talking about it in the 1990s, in the 2000s. And I think if you look back to then, it was the sense that oh, the market had won. There doesn't need to, the, the Soviet Union had, fell, had fallen. Uh, we don't need to be involved in certain commodity sectors, and we don't need to be collecting that information. The U.S. Geological Survey, which had been very active uh, in the, um, understanding the markets, had become less so um, as funding had decreased. But now we're getting to a point where we're realizing, wow, this stuff has value. And it's not just the military. It's not just making something stronger. It's making something lightweight. It's making something faster. Uh, it's making something more powerful. And all of those things are about, oftentimes, efficiency. And that's the green technology. So we're now starting to focus on these materials. And we're talking about $20 million initiatives that are used to study all critical materials. And when you're looking at how much goes to algae research from the government, you're looking at 30 million. Not saying algae isn't important, but there's a whole new set of materials. And, and uh, going back to Luis's point about the, the focus on uh, how do we make a lithium battery, and that is critical. How do we do that? But if we can reduce the price of lithium tenfold by developing a new processing technique, that makes lithium batteries that much less expensive, and that means their deployment could be used, could be far greater. And therefore, if lithium is used effectively in green cars, then that's a green revolution in itself. So they're knock-on effects. In, in terms of what the government can do, I'd love to see um, an international material agency. How do we talk about material issues as we get, reduce our reliance on fossil fuels? We need an international body. Um, it would be helpful to have an international body to discuss these material issues than rather than going through the WTO for a trade case. Sorry. Let's uh, open it up. Uh, I hope there are some good questions. I'm sure there will be. I see two hands first there, and then we'll go over there. Please identify yourself, too. And maybe you could stand up, and we have a yeah. hand mic for you. All right. Do you want me to get up or sit down? Well. No, I'll sit down. So uh, my name is Michael uh, Yamwa, and I work for Bechtel. Uh, we do a lot of things in oil and gas, metals, and mining. Um, so do great work with GE all over the world. Could you just hold it a little closer? Yeah, do a lot of great work with GE all over the world. Um, right. My point, my, my question points to that environmental risk that we talk about, and also the commercialization aspect of it. You know, unlike other major metals, I think with the major metals. You know, we, we are still even facing trying to make environmental risk economical. You know, it's very tough. We haven't achieved that yet. We still face a lot of hurdles, uh, and it's very challenging. So now you add on this, you know, critical 
<laughs> metals and it's like oh my gosh you know companies like Bechtel which design and build these massive mining operations around the world you know don't want to go in there because we haven't even dealt with the bigger issues so then you're talking about the future if you don't have these big companies going in and addressing this issue and then you come to the commercialization part of it which is okay let me sacrifice all this investment to do this however I don't have a real market to be able to create transaction and demand and supply. So I feel like you know the prospect going forward is almost looking like China has a monopoly, however way you look at it, for probably the next 20 years. You know, uh, I mean, that's my guess. I, I may be wrong, but that's my real question here. Yes, I mean, China has the monopoly and the vision to do it, right? Uh, to, to, to spend so much money uh, like they did in developing uh, processes uh, for rare earth. Um, it, it, it takes a little bit of, 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 of vision and, uh, and willingness for risk that we don't see uh, so much here. And maybe because, you know, they're communists and, and things sort of trickle down a different way. Um, but, um, you know, it will be defini definitely uh, difficult to, to compete with, with China. And, but, but you're right. There are still issues that we're trying to solve with the existing metals. So if you look at, for instance, aluminum, you know, we use bauxite to make alumina and then makes aluminum. But bauxite has uh, the nasty waste. Uh, and a few years in Hungary, I think two years or three years ago, uh, there was an incident where the, the byproduct waste basically destroyed a, a whole village and killed people. So these are definitely issues that we're still dealing with. But we need to be able to then find new uh, processes, and there are. There are companies out there trying to develop new technologies that can improve the, for instance, uh, the, the technologies to, uh, to make uh, alumina and others. Uh, but it's very expensive. And from, from the perspective of the capital markets, investors don't want to be investing uh, in technologies that are going to fail or with such a high risk. That's when, I guess, government can come in through institutes and so forth and develop new processes knowing that, uh, you know, and this happens many times uh, in, in, in technology companies, you might develop five uh, uh, processes and only one works. And, and at the end of it, you probably spend 300, 400 million. But you have to have that vision that, that 30 years from now, you become more competitive. Uh, so I think that's sort of the vision that uh, uh, some of these the countries and governments need to have. Anybody else? Uh, uh, go ahead. But yeah, I, I, in terms of the China change, it doesn't look likely when you've got a willingness of, for a rare earth space. All of a sudden, you'll hear you, the government is stockpiling X amount of tons of, of neodymium or dysprosium. That's nice if you're a company and you just have a whole bunch of stuff sitting in your warehouse that the government just bought it. Uh, that kind of support doesn't exist elsewhere. So it's tough to compete against that unless you're, not, unless you're focusing on how can you create technologies. And that's what, we're, that's what the U.S. is good at, is coming up with technologies. The thing that we have to do is make mining and metallurgy a little more sexy uh, because people <laughs> aren't spending their time. Uh, it, it, people from these material sciences schools go to Facebook or to other companies, and we're losing that, that edge that we worked so hard to, to create. Now, nothing against the people who choose that, 
but we have to find ways to, to get the people to do what they've been trained to do and find more ways to get people trained. Where, where does the technology get developed? Can it get developed in government, you know, with ARPA or, you know, national laboratories? Or should it be uh, the government giving grants to, you know, private companies doing it? Or... Uh, or both when, of the above, or when, we, when you're talking about uh, you know chemical processes, for instance, we know that USGS has done significant uh, tests back uh, in uh, the '60s, um, and many of the, the the technologies now that are being uh, used and developed in companies that are listed uh, as some in Toronto that are actually based in technologies that the USGS funded. Uh, but all of a sudden, I guess the Cold War ended, and you know, uh, and, and 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 the focus changed. Uh, but that that is basically uh, affecting uh, the the world economies. You know, it's, it's it's not just obviously the defense industry that matters; all the other ones. And and developing these critical mat materials will definitely support other other industries. Okay. Can I jump in? I sure. agree that it's, it's one of these all of, the above, all of the above solutions. And so when I think about support, right, I think private companies should be able to fund things that are critical to their, their use. But as, Lare as um, Lisa pointed out, some technologies or some things that are really early stage ideas are very risky. And so right now, I mean, you see the government seeding and, and funding pre-competitive research. So early ideas that are really just very, very risky very low yield, but if they succeed, it would be great. And I think that's a, a fantastic place for, for government to be investing in R&D because individual companies may not have the resources um, to do that. I think as things come closer to market, you can begin to allow competitive forces to take, take place and, and begin to, to refine those technologies. And, and you can get a best of the both worlds type of approach. But I think it is one of these all of the above. It's truly, if it's truly of strategic interest, then I think you have to invest um, accordingly. Okay, back in the back corner there. Jeff Epping with Enedis LLC. Uh, we've been talking about critical metals, and I'd like to turn to the top end of the periodic chart and actually turn to gases to helium. I wonder if any of the panelists had any comment on helium. The U.S. is a major supplier of helium. Its asset base is, is wasting away. It, it's going to decline and deplete uh, over the next uh, few years, and just uh, see how that looks, if you have any comment on it. I can jump in with that. Um, helium is, a is something that, as a company, we, we use a lot of, um, basically in cooling the MRI uh, mag uh, magnets. So if you ever had an MRI, it's, it's a superconducting magnet that allows you to get the image, and you need to cool that, and liquid helium is used for that. So GE has a fairly significant exposure to helium. Um, a couple years ago, when, when there was talk about closing the helium um, strategic reserve, you had a lot of people, not just GE, um, research un universities, everybody basically got together and said, hey, this is something that we need to to make sure we, we pay closer attention to. So helium is definitely something that's critical to many different people. Um, I think um, the challenge that I saw personally when I was, was looking into it was that you had um, sort of a very large um, externality in the sense that the, the, the US Strategic Reserve was, was essentially distorting the market in some respects so that it wasn't able to respond as, as um, agilely as you'd like it to, to do. Um, do to, to market forces. And so I think that sunset provision created some, some churn, and, and I think that was ultimately worked out. But longer term, helium is, is certainly something you need to be thinking about. It's, it's a byproduct of natural gas, and so all the things with, with respect to fracking, you can begin to see a lot of different um, interconnections that are somewhat subtle come into the supply of helium. And so, so it is something that I think is, is important to think about. Okay. Oh. Yeah, I realize we're, 
Sorry. I realize we're talking about many different products, many different markets, et cetera. That said, I'm going to ask an oversimplified question, cross-cutting across this. From the perspective of North American governments and industry, all of whom are collectively investing billions of dollars and not getting into how much out of which pot, um, it sounds like there's, and across all these different uh, um, elements, there's the question of do we try to diversify sources beyond a China, Bolivia, Congo, whatever it is for the different one. To what extent do we invest in reducing the cost of these materials through better processes? And to what extent do we develop ways to minimize the amount of products we need for a given application? If you are the uh, czar in charge of all of this North American R&D um, funds, how would you divvy up that pot between those three things very roughly? You know, is it uh, mostly this and a little of that, or is it one third, one third, one third? I think that the challenge is the who's the we. Right. You know, that's the question. Is it, is it Bechtel? Is it GE? Is it the U.S. government? Uh, is it the military? So they all have different interests and different risks. So it's a, it's a challenge to say who the we, the we are. The way the U.S. government really looks at these critical materials now is through a defense end. How do we ensure that if a war were to break out, we have enough to build our plane? But what they don't think about is how much GE is going to need to build what, whatever, whatever, GE is working, whatever GE is working on. Excuse me. Um, so there's a the question of, uh, of, of you know, who's, who's the we and what material is needed. Um, I, and I think you'd have to look at it. a company. It's a question of how do you ensure supplies through unstable times, and that means stockpiling and, and, and hedging if you can on any material, but it's hard to hedge on, it's impossible to hedge on minor metals. Um, and then individual companies would make sense to say what is, how can we replace X material. Um, but the problem with, with substitution is we're not good with substitution. Diet Coke doesn't taste like real Coke. <laughs> and you can't, make, you can't make pizza without yeast. And these materials are used in such small quantities, but they're so critical. And you can't replace them in many cases. So, and, and if you're spending research dollars on replacement, then you're not spending, re well, I believe, if you're, not spending, if you're spending money on uh, replacing a material, you're not spending money specifically on developing a new, a new, a new product. Um, sometimes great things happen when you learn how to replace. Um, but I think that the focus should be on how do we build the best product, if I'm a company, why do, rather than how do we build uh, the best product without material X, Y, or Z. Um, although there are risks to that strategy, obviously. So I know I didn't answer your question, but I would just say it depends on the week. I'd say Diet Coke tastes like Diet Coke. And after, <laughs> and after, and after drinking Diet Coke for the last, I don't know how many years, 30 years or whatever it's been, uh, I can't stand the taste of real Coke. So people, so it's pe a new product. So it's, it's a new yeah. product, and people might learn to like the replacement. So <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, Bill Icord, and then uh, I'll ask you. Thanks, Bill Icord. I'm a consultant in town, but I um, interestingly used to work for a company that owned Molycore before it became an independent oh. company. So I actually know a lot about the mines that they they operated. Um, one of the things that's, that, that's that's interesting about the market. I mean, this is more of a comment, and maybe you all can make an observation about it. Is that you know the technology existed 
very well to do the environmental controls and do them properly and that's thing. But the cost could never be competitive with a foreign competitor that was not internalizing those costs. That in, therein lies the, that, that was the, the biggest problem. The other thing is that I will say is that, that even though people called them rare earths or call, they call them rare earths, sort of the internal comment was, well, they're not rare enough. Because there, there is this you know, international supply and because you know, the market for them was very much variable. And so you ran into this trap all the time of to, to run your mining process, which you know, a lot of, moving a lot of, 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 a lot of dirt, a lot of rock and that sort of thing. But you could not, you would then develop a large enough supply, but you couldn't lay that supply off fast enough. So the combination of high cost, um, inputs, high cost to maintain the product, but then not enough immediate market to cover the cost. And I think that's kind of what you were look, you're saying at, at G, uh, G, that GE was looking at. Third thing is that, well, I, I take your point about the substitutes. I think there always has been this question about are there going to be other substitutes that are coming along at the nano level, for example? And, and having also worked in the chemical industry, you know, there's a lot going on now to make substitutes um, at that level. And I think there's a big question, you know, of, of you know, will there be substitutes? So I, I just kind of throw that out as some comments. The substitute, yes, there, there. I guess there are substitutes, and there are times where substitutes make a lot of sense, and there. Times where you can change your oil refinery to use different materials um, that are cheaper. There's sometimes where it's really easy to do, but broadly speaking, to get to replace one material um, in all its end uses, that's where the challenge is. And when prices go up, people find ways to substitute. So that is real. Uh, the question is, is it is it real to do it on every instance? And that's kind of what I was highlighting. So I don't think I did a, a fair enough job. So. Thank you for pointing that out. You know, I think that's a really important point, that it, it's tempting to think about this as, you know, there's material X, and material X is used across the board, and there's a critical materials list, and it's the same list for everybody. And uh, I think it's, uh, it would be a disservice to kind of walk out of the room and think, you know, there's one master list that everyone shares. I think depending on your industry, depending on your application, depending on the decade, um, that list is dynamic, it changes, and technology is a big driver for it, but it's not the only driver. I think you point out economics is a big one, right? You've got a capital story that just doesn't make sense. Everything else could line up, but it, it, you can't make it work. And I think that's an important nuance that I'm glad was brought out. It's just, I think it's important to have the discussion, I think it's important to pay attention to it, and to kind of hear the examples that we've given up here and say, wow, this could be a really big issue, but then to walk out of the room and think about, well, what are my critical materials in the space that I'm interested in, and are there ones that are common to a lot of people where maybe I can get enough will to move? Like rare earths, I think, really got a lot of people's attention. But different people will have different things at different times. And, and that's, that's where I think it's kind of an interesting space because there's a lot of room for private sector as well as the government and, and others to, to play. I mean, I, I just wanted to say also that's important to note that, again, um, the vision that many Chinese companies uh, have or the approach they have. I remember being uh, in San Francisco uh, in a rare earth conference, I think it was back in 2013, 2014, and, and, I, and this Chinese company approached some of uh, the Canadian rare earth companies. And, and, and after he had approached and gave his card and wanted to learn more, I approached him and I said, but you, China is already the largest producer. And he goes, yes, 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 but you know, not, it's not gonna be forever. And, and, and so there is always that vision <laughs> 10, 20 years forward, 
uh, how they're going to be competitive. And they make the sacrifices now. Um, and I understand that Molycorp had a lot of costs and so forth, uh, but um, you know, they did have other assets that were sort of uh, supporting the costs, and, and maybe they should have maintained that for, for a little bit longer. Okay. Well, we have three hands. Uh, we'll start with you, then, and then over. And that'll bring us pretty much to the end of the program. Hi, hi. Uh, I'm Mulvin Mali, senior fellow at World Watch Institute. So from a pure competitive advantage perspective, if China can produce things at the cheapest cost, they get the right, I guess, to be a monopoly. I get that. But yes, the moment you start looking from a nuanced point of view, like geopolitical risk, commercial risk, it doesn't sound like such a great idea. So what is it that companies are doing in real time to, to mitigate that risk? Are they picking up equity stakes in Chinese mining companies? Are they exploring joint mining sites outside of the China geography, maybe in Africa. I mean, I'm sure companies are doing some things to mitigate this risk, right? Sorry, what companies? The technology, the Siemens and GEs? No, no, they don't, they don't, they don't, that. they don't do that. I mean, many of the major uh, mining companies, uh, even technology companies in China, many of them have uh, are own, or the ownership, they are significantly owned by the government, and the government has a lot of say. Um, here is kind of different. There is not, yeah, I mean, you know, easier said than done. Right, uh, I understand. Investing it's in different China. politics. Uh, okay, uh, why don't we take both questions and then we'll get responses. Uh, Thank you, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Murado, Additive Manufacturing Lead for the Marine Corps. Um, but I did a lot of research at the Eisenhower School on strategic materials and wrote a paper on uh, Chinese exploitation of strategic materials in East Africa. And to your point, Luisa, I think it's a couple things. It's vision, first of all, uh, and second of all, uh, to everyone on the panel's point, um, China recognizes you know, the value now. Maybe they didn't. Maybe it was serendipitous at first, but now they recognize the value of it, and they're planning for the long term. So you talk about uh, you know, what's the next frontier, and from what I'm seeing, it's Africa. And where is China investing far more heavily than the United States government? Absolutely. In Africa. And I have many friends from Africa, and I talked to them, and every single one of them said China didn't exist in Africa 20 years ago. Now you can't go you know, around a corner without running into a Chinese restaurant. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of like the canary in the coal mine in a, in, a, in a weird reverse sense. But I guess you know, my question is, I mean, obviously they ha China has a strategic vision. You know, private industry is not going to seek to mitigate because why would you if you can get it cheap from China and you have factories in China as well as your your global corporation? And in truth, in advertising, I'm actually a reservist, so I work for a I'm a global logistics director uh, for a quartz and ceramics company, and we have a factory in China. And what's interesting is I ship sand from the United States to China, and for 16,000 kilograms of sand in one container, it only costs me about $2,000 to ship that. So I don't need to mine. I don't need to mine it in China if I can mine it somewhere else, slightly refine it, beneficiation a little bit, and then I send it for $2,000 in a container to, to China. So I guess from a strategic perspective, I mean, how do we, and it's got to be government driven. Private industry isn't going to drive it, and I wouldn't drive it from a private industry perspective. My, my CEO, we rely on tungsten. He's not, he doesn't care where the tungsten comes from. He just wants to get it cheaper. So at the end of the day, how do we energize the United States government governments in Western Europe, governments that, that may want to create some independence for their companies from a strategic perspective, for, for their industries, and not just defense, but, but across the board economically, how do we energize the United States government and other like-minded governments to say, hey, this is important and we need to you know, compete 
not not just stockpile, but compete with China in these emerging markets like in Africa, for example? I mean, um as you were talking, I was thinking about the Dodds-Frank critical, uh, the conflict minerals sort of uh, discussions and, and legislations and all these things. That's the opposite of what essentially you're trying to suggest, which, which is the United States needs to be more comfortable going into, you know, maybe uh, places where the, the geopolitics are, are not as friendly, let's put it like that. Um, and, and, and because China doesn't literally, they, they don't care. They go where they think it's economic. I'm not saying that it's necessarily right uh, to buy cobalt from uh, you know an area where people are clearly being enslaved and so forth. But um, but there are other alternatives. I mean, not all of Africa is in war. I mean, I just came from from, from East Africa. I was there. You know, it felt extremely safe. Uh, exactly, uh, Uganda, Tanzania, Rwanda, all these places. Uh, the, you know, there's, there's there's no war as far as I as far as I understand. Uh, being there, anyways. Um, and, and so I think yes, you're right. These companies need to be, feel comfortable uh, going there, but. Uh, buying minerals from areas which uh, are considered uh, conflict areas, even though there's no conflict, that is an added cost for American, uh, you know, uh, producers and suppliers down there. Uh, so, so th there is definitely the need of uh, of having a much broader discussion uh, in terms of if 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 uh, if if if, the, if America is not going to be developing their own industries at home. Uh, if, if America is not going to invest in processes to make those in the, 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 the processing and recovery of materials cheaper, where are, you, where are you going to get it? And if you're not going to Africa to get it, uh, where many of these critical materials are re relatively cheap to produce, like tantalum, tin, the treaties, uh, and so forth, really, what you know, what are the alternatives left? So th that's definitely an important discussion to have. You know, we had uh, we were talking to some high-level Department of Energy people yesterday on this new project innovation that they're doing, which would double our budget and doing research and uh, development and clean technologies working on a glo global, it would be, a, it's a global, a global project. Maybe there has to, which several, several countries are joining in. Maybe there ought to be the same kind of thing I mean, uh, in if, this area. If you're having a strategy to develop renewable energies and right. advanced technologies, it's important to know where you're going to source these materials. Right. Because all of a sudden, all these technologies might become more expensive than you thought otherwise. Right. There was another question over on this side. of the, Yes, we need a microphone, right? And I think we'll call it a day. Thank you, uh, Jun Kroda from Japanese Embassy. Uh, somehow related to the previous question, but uh, uh, David mentioned uh, I, I M, I M E, I M A. So I'd like to uh, 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 you to elaborate a little bit more about international cooperation dimension. Uh, there was uh, also mentioned about the WTO cases, and I'm sure the David knows uh, very well about uh, Japan. Uh, is interested in this issue at least at that time. So how do you see the co uh, uh, possibility of you know international cooperation at, at especially uh, government level? Also, uh, could anybody talk about uh, the possibility of uh, a reuse or uh, recycling uh, in in this context? Is it uh, is that can be a good way to address some of those uh, issues? Thank you. 
the International Energy Agency, founded in, in the 70s after some oil challenges. Um, and it was just a few countries trying to understand what the, what the market was from the, uh, and, and it's really grown. And we've had another a number of agencies to try and look at um, you know, the market. What's, what's going on? Where's supply coming from? It's just to highlight the, the resource, to get a better understanding of these resources. I have, I've been studying you know, for, for five, or five years to try and understand how much, rare, how much rare earth production there is in the world. I have no idea. The, people, the best people I know put out statistics and say, well, you know what, I'm 20% either way. That's a 40% gap. And I think if he could take away 20 and put 30, he would. We don't have a great understanding. So if there's any way that we can start acknowledging this and getting people, countries together at the table where we can talk about material issues, hopefully that can ward off the case for, for WTO cases where we can discuss the, the, the need. So it's getting people together and it's discussing, um, discussing these, these issues. In terms of recycling, uh, the these materials are used in often such small quantities, it's really challenging to recycle uh, from an economic standpoint because you can't recycle a little, you know, a half a gram or an eighth of a gram. And, and scientifically, we just can't separate these things. It's e easier to get, um, to, to get chocolate chips out of a chocolate chip cookie and the butter out and, the, and then the sugar than it is to find where the dysprosium is in your phone. Um, so it's, it's a challenge that we're gonna, that's only going to get harder as more of our materials become specialized. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's, it's the same situation again with recycling. Um, and I look at the stock, uh, the, the, the companies listed in the stock market, there are a few that are trying to address uh, the, the issue of recycling. There is many others that are private. Uh, and it's a question of capital to come up with new technologies that can do it economically. And, and the other, always, uh, I found the, the discussion when we talk about recycling technologies, it has always seemed to be a trade-off with, with energy. Uh, the cost of energy to, to extract these things um, in addition to reagents and so forth. And usually it makes more sense when the price of commodities are higher. And, and, and maybe, again, uh, maybe that's what we need to be doing is to focus more when prices are high, maybe to focus a little bit more on recycling. Uh, and, and, and maybe there should be government incentives to do that uh, so that we can uh, preserve resources and the environment and so forth. Yeah, I think it's a blanket statement. Recycling is a nice concept, but it, it really does depend on the details. So if you have a very high value material that's fairly concentrated, right, you can do that, and, th and that does occur. If you have a dissipative use where it just kind of ends up scattered or whatever, it's like getting your chocolate chips, right? It's, it's very difficult. So I think there is room to play, and in specific cases it can and has been done, that I'm aware of at least. Um, but as a general solution, I think it's, it's um, one that is not going to be a, a it's not going to work. It's not going to solve the problem by itself. Any? Would you like to? Any of you like to make any closing comments as we come to an end? I, I think, in general, that we have to stop seeing this mining and materials world as something an over there thing, and our iPhones and our hybrids over here. That they're they're all related, and you have to understand that. And minor metals is a way to see that, uh, but. It's something that we have to start to address before we can do things like green the supply chain or, or address geopolitical uh, risk and, and so on. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that, um, adding to what Dave was saying, I think that it's important uh, for governments to be more involved. I think companies need to be more involved as well. Many of these major technology companies are listed in stock exchange and they're more interested in showing performance every quarter than getting involved in a 
20-year vision or 30-year vision. And I think perhaps the government can come in with some incentives uh, and, and pull together the private and you know, the public sector. Yeah, I think it's a big problem, and I think it's one that requires skill sets from across the spectrum. So you need policymakers, technology. You need everybody on, on working together for it. And so for me, this is one of the, the most interesting projects I've worked on during my, during my career. So I'm really happy to, to be part of it and happy to be here today. So it's really neat. Well, maybe this is a small beginning. <laughs> uh, and uh, thank you. Uh, thank the entire panel for just a, an outstanding discussion. There are excellent questions. Uh, from the people out in the audience, and uh, so let's uh, let's give a round of applause to our panel. Thank you, and to the audience. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>